Cage is probably one of our generation's definitive actors. Hello and welcome to Cage Fighting. It's your main man Andy Gillard here. Hope everyone's keeping safe in this well, a time of recording. It is the first day of kind of freedom starting to come back. So I hope you're keeping safe out there right now. Hi everybody, Matt Guy here. Beer, 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 Jim, Jim, Jim. Let's have it. Well, less of the Jim, Jim, Jim bit, to be honest. <laughs> I think it was more Jim Beam, Jim Beam, Jim Beam. <laughs> I'll go with that one. I, I did think about wearing my Jim Bean t-shirt today, but I thought, no, nah, I'm going to William. I'll, I'll represent Walsh and piss off the Walsall, just in case. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's more of a more of a logical step. But yeah, mm. I quite fancy Jim Bean now. Bastards. <laughs> I don't think I've got any in. Oh, Stu, hello. <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> hell. Oh, dear. Oh, perfect one take, Stu. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so this weekend, lads, I rewatched Left Behind. I we'd watched um, Thunder Force, the new film on Netflix with Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer. Um, it was a bit meh, and then in the list of films below it was Left Behind. So I just thought, why the hell not <laughs> see what it's actually like? You know, a few months down the line, see what it's like as a rewatch. Turns out, it's still really fucking shit. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure why <laughs> you thought it'd be anything else. <laughs> Didn't need to torture yourself and the best part of two hours yet again. Yeah, I did sit there ranting for pretty much all of it, to be honest. But, but ranting to yourself? Oh, no, no, the other half was with me. We were having a discussion. Because she saw that um, Chad Michael Murray, I can't even remember the fucking guy's name, uh, she saw that he was in it, and I was like, okay, we'll watch it, and then when you've had enough, I'll turn it off. And then two hours later, we we just finished it. Has she seen it before? No. No. Oh, and she yeah. only started listening to this podcast after we'd, we'd done that, so it was new to her. I did warn her. I did warn her. <laughs> Has she gone back and listened to the episode now, though? Uh, not yet. She's listened to this week's, which obviously dropped today. And she's going to listen to tomorrow's uh, uh, that that old one tomorrow um, when she's in work. All so that would be nice for her. Absolutely. <laughs> Even dating back, it's it's always good to see that the numbers tick up. <laughs> so this week we're here to discuss adaptation. Um, what can you say about this film? It's it's both really quite mundane and off the wall at the same time. It's it's a bit of an oddity, this one, I felt. Um, did either of you two know this film before like before we decided we were going to do it for this podcast? Is this a new one on, on you guys? No, completely. To the point where it took to almost the T in adaptation for Netflix to even bring it up as a suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> like, there were so many films before it that it would suggest it was so deep in the doldrums of Netflix. Yeah, exactly the same. I mean, even though it was, it's one of the ones where it's the uh, the scholar's dream to kind of break down and talk about. It was, it's never been mentioned by anyone I know <laughs> until it was put on, until it was forced upon us. And then I'm glad it was really. 
but we'll get into that in a bit. Yeah, I mean, like I knew about it when it came out. Um, I think I went through a period of time just trying to watch some Oscar nominated films, and it was when my Oscar challenge started way back when. And obviously, Cage was nominated for Best Actor in it. Um, so I watched it probably about, well, I'm going to it's 2003 awards that it was uh, out for. So we're looking at the best part of a long time ago, 18 years since its release. And I don't think I've seen it since. And it's not that I didn't enjoy the film. It's just not something I ever thought I would have rushed back to. Just it is what it is, I think. Uh, obviously, it's directed by Spike Jones, who was hot shit back in the early aughts. He was Karen O's boyfriend from the Yeah, Yeah, Yes, if you know her mm. music. Yeah, um, he was the next big thing. He was originally a music director. Um, his most famous video would have been Weezer's Buddy Holly, which is a hell of a film. That film, well, I suppose it is. It's a short film, isn't it? And then he did work with Sonic Youth, Daft Punk, Pavement, Biggie Smalls. He, he worked with a lot of big names and then jumped over to being John Malkovich, which I think was his first film proper, uh, which he directed. And this would have been his second one, Adaptation. Um, since then, he's done mostly music videos. The only other film that I could see that he directed was Her, starring Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Scarlett Johansson. I don't know if you guys know that one. Yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah, I like that. See, I, I like Spike Jones as a director. He's quite a naturalistic approach to things. Like nothing looks too heightened or too drawn out. I feel like he lets the story unfold. He has. He seems to have a bit of a laissez-faire approach to direction, from what I've read about him. But he just hasn't done a lot of direction work, which is sad because what I have seen, I have enjoyed. He was um, he was in Jackass, wasn't he? I think he he's he's friends with those guys, yeah. Because I know I know for sure he's done work with Tenacious D because I've seen him on. Because I'm sad enough to own about three Tenacious D DVDs, and I've seen him in like bonus footage. I think he did the video for Wonder Boy, maybe. Um, so I know he's done a lot of musical work where I know him from primarily. How did you manage to say that without actually doing it? What do you mean? <laughs> I'm not... singing along. Yeah, <laughs> he's on the tip of my tongue. It's <laughs> only because I've got a sore throat. I don't think I'd hit the note to actually sing Wonder Boy. <laughs> I don't think I've hit that note since I was about eleven years old. <laughs> Do you reckon? I reckon Stu was. Um, he's not going to know it though, is he? We know when Barney um, in The Simpsons um, gets on the <laughs> yeah. beer, he has this angelic voice, and as soon as he starts drinking beer, his voice goes, and he's no longer the voice of an angel. Yeah, it's like a mezzo soprano. Yeah. No, that was that was never the case. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the only apart from me and Goldie singing um, Band Aid in November in the pheasant once and getting booed off stage, and the only the only other time I've actually done karaoke was I think I did. Um, oh, what's it called? Uh, Andres Johnson, glorious. <laughs> <laughs> that's always a molly, isn't it? That yeah, that's what we need. It's always giving a little smile to myself. But I think that was at the at the uh, True Britain. They'll have to write in and qualify that because I'm sure Dean, one, someone was there who must have seen how terrible that was. But I thought I was good at that, and then I heard it back, and I wasn't. So that's why one of my think. one of my cringiest moments I can think of in my entire life was when I did Angels by Robbie Williams. 
Horrendous. I can't wait for karaoke as well. Like when I'm when things are properly open again, I definitely want to go do karaoke. And like I've got songs in my head that I know I want to do. Number one, Sledgehammer, Peter Gabriel. Yes. Number two, Banger. I want to do um, Smooth, Rob Thomas featuring Santana or whichever whichever <laughs> version around it is. That's an ambitious one. And then three, I wanted to do No Tomorrow by Orson because I love that song as well. Oh yeah, I remember. I it was in my old cold days. They're, very, they're three very challenging songs for someone that does not sing. However, fake it until you make it, baby. Mm. Well, if we if you're going to sing that, I'll sing Kavana. Just to just to even it up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm fully aware I cannot sing for shit, so I'll just completely avoid that. I've done a karaoke a couple of times, but only when I've been singing with a couple of other mates. Remember, we went up and did. I think it was my way. It was a Frank Sinatra one. <laughs> And I remember thinking it was fine, and like I don't think there's any footage. And then we went back up and did Lionel Richie. I think it was Dancing on the Ceiling, and quickly realised that we didn't know any of the fucking words and was too drunk to read the script as it was going on. So it was just an absolutely appalling mess at the end of it. <laughs> uh, so in this film, I think the bigger name is probably, or, or the bigger name, the off-screen section of it would be that of the writer Charlie Kaufman. Um, Obviously, he's quite an iconic writer. He wrote Being John Malkovich, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I'm going to struggle pronouncing this. Sinodoki, New York. The film, um, again, it was Oscar-nominated, one, I believe. Um, I can never pronounce it, though. And I'm thinking of Ending Things, which was quite a big film in the past 12 months. He's got quite a unique style, I think. He's very similar to... He reminds me of Aaron Sorkin, how... He's very much mile a minute, walk and talk style. But he's like the flip side of that coin. Like he likes to talk, so, talking talk, uh, sorking talks about what's happening constantly. Whereas Kaufman is the opposite. He has a lot of talking about what people are feeling. I, I find him quite an interesting writer. Um, <clears throat> and I know obviously that Charlie Kaufman is a character in this movie, which made it quite an interesting premise going into it, knowing that the writer was a character, but not actually in it so it was quite a unique one on that front mm. i mean it's like this film breaks the fourth and fifth wall <laughs> if anything mm. in a quite a confusing but still very enjoyable way so the trailer on this bad boy i don't think the trailer does this film justice at all the songs they used in the bedding on this trailer makes it seem like it's a really straightforward Hollywood film about overcoming the odds. They use uh, Queen and Bowie under pressure. And that would kind of put me off it just because it seems like it's such a generic mo- a generic mm. choice of song for this movie. And it's Queen. Um, and you hate Queen. Yeah, but it's Bowie and I love Bowie. So I'd kind of let that slide. It just makes it seem like it wouldn't be my kind of film, if I'm perfectly honest. No, I'd, never in a million years. If I if I saw that, it's like the old um, the, the old video days, the old DVD rental days when you had to when they always put shit films that you'd never in a million years watch before the actual mm. film started, and you couldn't skip it or get to a, a menu or anything. This seat, that, that trailer looks like one of them, where yeah, you just think, well, just hurry up and stop because <laughs> it, it it just looked awful. It looked boring, mm. which is the opposite of the film. But I think once you've seen the film and knowing then the trailer, I think there is a, an element of genius to it. We'll get to that in a bit because I've got it further on in my notes. But I do think there is a reason for it. 
I just think you need to have seen the whole thing, and I don't think that that trailer would have took you to the cinema to see it personally. So IMDb describes this film as a lovelorn screenwriter becomes desperate as he tries and fails to adapt The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean for the screen. I mean, that is not an enticing synopsis for a film. If someone told me to watch a film about a lovelorn screenwriter trying to adapt a book called The Orchid Thief, (laughs) I I wouldn't have given this film the time of day. (laughs) I would be watching this film under duress, to be perfectly honest, by the, the sound of that. Although I did like the tagline, which is from the creator of being John Malkovich comes the story about the creator of being John Malkovich. (laughs) I thought that was quite clever. (laughs) She hates me. She's disappointed. I could see it in her eyes when we met. I've got to stop sweating. Oh, she looked at my hairline. She thinks I'm bald. She's thinking I would never in a million years sleep with this guy. We think you're great. Oh, thanks. Wow, that's that's nice to hear. To begin, coffee would help me think. Coffee and a muffin. I'm going up to Santa Barbara this Saturday, and I I was wondering. Oh. I'm sorry. So I'll just be right back with your pie then. Drum roll, please. I'm gonna be a screenwriter like you. I'm putting in a chase sequence. So the killer flees on horseback, cops after them on a motorcycle. And it's like a battle between motors and horses, like technology versus horse. Susan, we would really like to option this. You want to make it into a movie? I want to know what it feels like to care about something passionately. John LaRoche is a tall guy, sharply handsome. The book has no story. There's no story. Make one up. Okay, we open with LaRoche. No, we open at the beginning of time. Okay, we open with LaRoche. Crazy white man. We open on Charlie Kaufman. Fat, bald, ugly, paces. I've written myself into my screenplay. That's kind of weird, huh? I guess we thought that maybe Susan and LaRoche could fall in love. I just don't want to ruin it by making it a Hollywood thing. It's like I don't want to cram in sex or guns or car chases or characters overcoming obstacles to succeed in the end. She's crying. What's she hiding from? I think you actually need to speak to this woman to know her. People find love. People lose it. Every day, someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. Who's going to play me? I think I should play me. So the film begins with Nick Cage as Charlie Kaufman, giving himself a pep talk, bemoaning his life, balding, fat, miserable, lonely, in over his head, wondering about how he got here. Flashback four billion years. Cage's inner monologue is tearing him a new arsehole. He's at a meal with an agent trying to pitch that he can adapt the novel The Orchid Thief into a movie. He says he wants to let the script exist without turning it into a bastardised, Hollywoodized movie, changing the orchids to poppies, making it about drug smuggling, or making it an orchid heist movie. Why can't there be movies just about flowers? Charlie shoots down the su- suggestion of making the characters of the book fall in love as it's not real. 
I think it it kind of reminded me of a Woody Allen straight off the bat, this one, because it was about this neurotic writer, which is obviously what we very much know a Woody Allen-style character to be. So that was my very first impression was we're going to be in for that type of humour down the Woody Allen route, which is fine by me. I like Woody Allen's writing. I think he's a good director. Mm, the opening, the especially the four billion however many years ago, came out of the blue for what I thought this film was going to be yeah. like because you get the opening monologue in the in the black back with the back blah 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 is for me to say the black background uh and then you get this like rambling monologue and you think oh okay it's going to be a bit of an arty farty mess this um and then you get that then you get that scene and I'm like oh actually wow this is um this is different this isn't what I expected it to feel like after the first 30 seconds or something it felt very I mean it, you can tell this this is an old film by the quality of the footage, I suppose. But mm. it felt really fresh and original straight away, which was nice to see. Didn't feel like the usual dirge that we're used to with our good friend Nick Cage. Yeah. Um, he says that he doesn't want to cram in sex or guns or car chases or characters learning profound life lessons or growing or becoming or coming to like each other or overcoming obstacles in the end. The book isn't like that. And life isn't like that. Cut to three years prior. Meryl Streep is playing the author of the book. That would be Susan Orlean. She's writing about her meeting with Jan, John Laroche. I believe it was pronounced, if I can remember correctly. Uh, cut back a further two years. Chris Cooper asks Laroche. He is hunting the rare ghost orchid and gets arrested for this. Back to the modern day. Charlie returns home to his brother Donald, also played by Cage. Donald is laid back, even the way he talks is completely different to Charlie. Like I felt that Charlie was he was quite fast mouthed, seemingly talking from the front of his mouth. He was very highly strung, whereas his brother Donald, he was louder, slightly slower, talking from the back of his mouth, immediately making him seem a lot more affable and friendly. I thought that was a really just that little thing in the way that they both had the both speech patterns told you quite a lot about these two complete different characters. I thought that was quite well done and a good way to show them straight off the bat. I thought straight away, I thought, is the other one real? Same, 100%. I was exactly <laughs> the same. Because I thought this film is so tongue-in-cheek, they talk about how mor- moronic it is. Mm. And that will be the fucking twist. Yeah. Yeah. Donald has been leeching off his brother and tells Charlie that he's found a job. He's going to be a screenwriter. Like, it's all so easy to just get a job in screenwriting. Like, it isn't the most interesting of salvos to any film that we've watched, but I think it's a really effective way of just setting up that we're going to be looking at several different time periods, that the narrative is going to be jumping back and forth. We've got this neurotic narrator who's going a mile a minute, so we immediately know that whatever he's saying, he might be the unreliable narrator in this. We don't we don't fully know that he's going to be completely truthful in what he's telling us. It's not explosions and madness, but I just thought it was a really smart way of opening the film up and just getting us up to speed and and giving the audience what they need to know to get through the rest of the film. I thought that was quite well done. Yeah, because you went and you already only skipped over the bit where he was um, arrested in the swamp, and you had the whole thing about yeah, I'm with Indians, so I'm allowed to be here because they picked it, and I thought. Oh, 
you'd already had the um the billion years before thing and then you went to that and then and then to is he possibly mentally ill i thought i had no clue what was going on at this point <laughs> at all <laughs> but i think in a good way yeah yeah that's what i mean it it grabbed my interest way more than the title and the po- the poster and the tagline I mean, I, I was prepared to be bored. Mm. And I thought, well, let's just get this over with. And I was, I mean, what's this, about 10 minutes, 15 minutes into me? Yeah. Uh, I was, it was proper full-on attention. Mm. So Charlie is sat at his desk, unable to press the buttons and actually write anything on his typewriter. Meanwhile, three years ago, Susan Orlean is writing her novel, writing about the history of the orchid hunters and her first meeting with LaRoche. 18 months prior at his court case. We see Charlie and his friend Cara. He clearly likes her and she obviously likes him too, but neither are seemingly willing to take the plunge. After she leaves the car, he thinks he'll get out and give her a romantic kiss. He then just drives away. In the other timeline, Orlean is observing LaRoche, believing he has visions of grandeur but is a historical genius when it comes to orchids, speaking almost poetically about how things are. Charlie goes for lunch. This is where he meets Judy Greer as the waitress. She loves orchids after she notices that he's reading the Orchid Thief book. They go to look at orchids, they kiss, and that's when Charlie wakes up. More unreliable narrator trope. I'm always happy whenever I see Judy Greer on screen. and I think it might be because of... Arrested Development. Yeah, it always just reminds me back to that. I don't know. She's just one of those actors who always puts a smile on my face. She's got a nice face. Yeah, she has. Yeah, she. She's. I don't know. She seems lovely. Yeah, like I would actually quite like to meet her. Just yeah. I wish she'd have held that pause just that little bit longer, Andy. Just feel <laughs> 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 <real> awkward <laughs> as hell. I'll put it in the. I'll put it in the edit. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What I might do is I'll just edit my part out of that, my response, and just leave it there. (laughs) (laughs) Donald disturbs Charlie to tell him about his script. It's Silence of the Lambs meets Psycho, about a killer who has been hunted by a cop who has fallen in love with the killer's hostage. But it turns out the killer has multiple personality disorder, and he is actually the cop and the girl and the killer. Charlie points out how stupid and obvious all that shit is. This is why I, I, I thought, well, it's clearly because it's self-referencing itself all the way through. I thought, well, it's plainly obvious that he's a, he's got split personality then, that, that Donald doesn't exist. And I was still on this tangent. Mm, like he's the, the, the embodiment of his own failures or something like that. Yeah. Like, like he's, a, he's a product of what he hates about himself and his self-deprecation and stuff like that. Yeah, I think the the real Charlie is probably an amalgamation of the character Charlie and Donald. Donald is like his most base urges when writing a script, that you just go for the easy, dumb shit that will hook people. Whereas the other Charlie is the one who wants to be highbrow and get into the nitty-gritty of it, even when there isn't a highbrow, nitty-gritty element to what he's trying to adapt. Mm, I, I thought it was a really interesting way to look at it, to be honest. It's like, man, I was playing Hellblade, but I wanted to go back to playing FIFA. (laughs) Especially what it was for me. (laughs) Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. Everyone has both sides of that within them. You do Sometimes you want something that's going to challenge you. Sometimes you just want loud noises. That's fine. In the space of two days, I watched 
um, Godfather Part 2, and then the next day, Godzilla King of Monsters. So <laughs> <laughs> That is quite a jump, to be fair. <laughs> Charlie's at a party. The girl he likes, Cara, she's with this man. His twin brother is with a younger woman, footloose and fancy free. Charlie leaves as he needs to get to work on the script. Everything is just running around his head. He's trying to order the script, going all the way back to 4 billion BC before realising that it's all nonsense and just bins it. Donald then returns home. Now he's working in writing. Charlie hates it and cannot understand how they share DNA. After days and days of throwing away draft after draft, Charlie has nothing to show for his efforts. Everything is coming so easy to Donald and he cannot get anything done. Both in work and in life, Donald just seems to be excelling. He finally starts to get somewhere, only to tailspin and write a movie about himself trying to write a movie based on the book that he's actually trying to adapt. He calls it self-indulgent, so he needs to meet Orlean himself to get to see what the person he's like that he's trying to write about. I quite enjoyed that scene where he's writing the script about him writing the script. Mm. Which is quite a clever way, especially because we're watching that film yeah. unfold. It's like going deep into the photograph of you, the photograph of yourself. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a proper inception in it. I like that. So you 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 think that all I kept thinking about was Shrek talking about onions have many layers. <laughs> 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 we're getting into we're getting into the you know the centralized part of this film onion, so to speak. Yeah. After failing to work up the courage, Charlie goes to a seminar for writers and he's ripping his brother apart for doing the same thing. This might be my favourite part of the film. After hearing Charlie's inner monologue telling us he's feeling insecure and worthless, the presenter of the seminar tells his audience, and God help you if you use voiceover in your work, it's a flaccid, sloppy writing. Any idiot can write voiceover narration to explain the thoughts of a character. I like that. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name who was in it. It was Brian Cox was the actor. Um, but I really like that because I'm very much on the same train of thought that I, I don't like voiceover, generally speaking. It, it's wasteful. And I liked someone on screen was actually telling us the same. Charlie asks the teacher, what if the writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens, where people don't change, they don't have epiphanies, they struggle? And nothing is resolved, like the real world. The teacher replies, you'll bore your audience to tears. Also, stuff happens every fucking day in the real world. People live or die, fall in love or get murdered. Why are you wasting my two hours with your movie? It's really clever because up until that point, that's exactly what has been going on. Yeah, it's it's strange that the film is a commentary of itself the whole way through. It's Mm. just, I'm really... I can't think of another film like it that is is just a telling of what's going on. Both its its own right. It's 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 just a weird manifestation of itself. I can't think of anything like it at all. It's proper um, snake eating its own tail at parts, which mm. the irony of it. That's what he says, isn't it? Yeah. Charlie realised what he was told was bigger than his screenplay. It was about his life choices. Charlie manages to get the teacher to sit down with him for a drink. And after reading him passages from the book, the teacher tells him that he doesn't have a film. He has to give it an ending. 
you have to wow them in the end and you've got a hit. But don't cheat and don't bring in a deus ex machina. The characters must change and the change must come from them. This teacher speaks to my very soul about script writing. <laughs> it's just perfect. <laughs> this interaction changes Charlie. He now invites Donald in to help him. Donald tells Charlie that he will help and he will meet Orlean pretending to be Charlie. Following the meeting, Donald believes that Orlean fell in love with LaRoche and that Orlean was a liar. Donald and Charlie spy on Orlean that night. They figure that she is running to LaRoche. While surfing the internet trying to find LaRoche's porn site, Donald discovers naked pictures of Orlean on this site. The film flashes back to a day when LaRoche and Orlean are together. LaRoche tells her about Native Americans who help him using the orchids to make drugs. So it turns out this is all about drug smuggling and not what they actually thought. Mm, that It was at this point where everything changed for me with this film. <laughs> yeah. And it lost that whimsical, let's talk about our feelings. And it became a, not an action film. I was, but, you, I, was literally, almost. I was literally going to say it turned from something quite thoughtful into an action film. So you are, you are right. It, that's exactly what it was. Mm. Orlean takes some of the drugs which had been made from the orchids. LaRoche calls her at the hotel. He has gone from an overweight man with greasy, awful hair and no teeth to looking kind of hunky. <laughs> like they've, they've actually physically changed the character. Like he's just slimmed down a little bit and looks more attractive and they've just completely changed him. So you are right. This is the moment where the film changes from what it was to what it is. Again, I thought it was a really clever, just a small change that seems to change the whole world. The characters meet up and they have sex that night. They follow, uh, Charlie and Donald, that is, follow her to Miami to meet LaRoche in the current timeline. At LaRoche's house, they see that the Kaufmans are spying on them and as they try to, <clears throat> sorry, and that they saw them doing drugs and having sex. LaRoche and Orlean get worried that Charlie is going to include the drugs in the screenplay and they decide they need to kill Charlie. They drive him to the swamp before they get a chance to kill Charlie, though. Donald jumps out and the Kaufmans run for their life. After hiding in the swamp all night, they attempt to escape, but there's a scuffle and both Donald and LaRoche get shot, dying. Charlie goes back to his home. He has an epiphany, realising he needs to live his life. He becomes more confident and even kisses Kara. As he's driving away, we get a voiceover telling us he knows how to finish the script. He will finish it with Kaufman driving away from his lunch with Kara and saying that he knows how to finish the script. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the voiceover, and he was told that that's bad. And that's the film in a nutshell. Like It, it kind of sounded quite mundane, especially for the first probably 50 minutes of it. But I don't think that's what the film is. I actually think it's quite a clever film and much more interesting than just literally talking about what the beats of the film. I think mm. there's a lot more to it than just just what you say, I think it's quite a clever in, in yeah, film. Yeah, I think the way it explores its themes around kind of his mental state was really interesting for me because they never get him going down the full mental health route. We don't see him gorging on um, tablets or, or anything like that. 
but we know he has obviously severe anxiety, social disorder, like syndromes and stuff like that. But they don't, they never make it like a plot device, as, as in, you know, they don't, they don't make it out like to be a weakness at any point for him. They don't make him addicted mm. to painkillers or they don't make him reliant on his pills or anything like that, as we've seen in other films that are trying to talk about mental health. I thought that was an interesting way that, you know, we, we see a, we see a transformation in him, but it's not like a really dramatic, really over the top hokey way of doing it. I thought he was done quite naturally and quite organically. Yeah. I've got, um, an autistic question mark because he does look like someone who starts off, who's very socially awkward. And like, if you go on the spectrum, he definitely tick a lot of the boxes on there, but then you have his brother, um, air quotes as the complete opposite. And that's very similar. I mean, you will get you do get siblings who are the almost complete opposites of each other, um, but you also get split personalities at this. <laughs> obviously, different. So, I can I'm still absolutely convinced that that was the, this film is about split personality disorder. <laughs> I don't care what anyone says. Any crocodiles or alligators or gunshots or drugs. So, <laughs> which are all included in this film as well. For me, that's what I took away from it. For the whole thing, I couldn't shake it out of my head. And I don't know why. Because it's kind of explained, and obviously, it's weird though. Because he, Donald is, is he, Donald is written in as a scriptwriter as well in the credits. Yeah, yeah. Of someone who he doesn't is. exist, so it's it's very very odd. But for me, that's what, I couldn't get the whole split personality kind of mental part of it, the whole thing out of my head, even though know- it's. Do you know something we don't, Andy? Because you have this little smirk on your face of... No, um, my thing is, is I don't... I know that Donald Kaufman doesn't exist in our world, but I don't think he is a figment of Charlie's imagination in the world of the film. I think in the film, they are actually twins. Mm. I don't think it's a, a representation of split personality disorder. I think it might be how Charlie views himself in our world. So I think that's how the, the real Charlie feels. He has these two warring personalities inside of him and he's trying to be more like Charlie and less like Donald, but he realises that he needs Donald in order to get the best out of Charlie. So what you're saying is to, to make this make sense to some of our listeners, Charlie is the dude love to Mick Foley's... <laughs> um, you know, he's the one he wants to be at times, but uh, can't always be. Yeah, what you're I, I think so. Ash has suddenly got fascinating. Ash has suddenly got very excited at this moment. So. <laughs> yeah, yes, there's no wrestling in this. Ash, sorry. <laughs> so the budget on this film was 19 million dollars, which I think is understandable. It's got a big name. Well, you know, an up and coming director. It's got a big name writer. It's got several stars in. So I kind of get where the money's been spent on this one. The box office was thirty-two point eight million, which is you know it's a decent return on a film of a nineteen million budget. But it didn't really make a dent in the box office in a year where we had a Lord of the Rings, a Harry Potter, a Star Wars, a Spider Man, and a Bond film. Hmm. So that would have been Two Terrors, Chamber of Secrets, Attack of the Clones, the first Sam Raimi, and Die Another Day. So before I give you the scores, what do you think this is going to get, either out of 100 or out of 10? Where where are you guys on the 
the charge for this one. I mean, it's so kind of Oscar baity that because it's so incestual in its own kind of bubble world that I'd guess critic score would give it some eight nines. I mean, overall, I'd probably give it about seven, five, eight. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's you can't sell it to anyone, can you? This is the thing you can't. I can't go and tell. If I try and tell my mom about this, she's, there's no way she'll watch it. <laughs> Even if I if I tell her about if there's crocodiles and guns and drugs in it, she won't watch it. If I say it's about, it could be about split personalities. It could be about mental issues. It could be about writer's block. None of them things will sell it to her. <laughs> mm, but every right, single yeah. one of them is in this film in some way. It's great, but yeah. So I think I'd guess seven and a half for me. I'd go higher. Yeah, I'd go critic eight. 8.5 or 85% fan score anything between 6.5 and 8.5 I think. Mm. I don't think it'll be it'll be a bit too artifact is not the word self-indulgence is not the word but it just it won't strike as many people as it would the critiques. Yeah, I think it's layered it's that onion you were referencing earlier yes. that there are layers to this film and some people won't get past the first layer and they'll just hate it regardless i think the people who persevere and get through they will find something they will love in it i just don't necessarily think like Stu said the buzzwords on this film probably won't draw you into it um but yet yeah, so the critic score on Rotten Tomatoes was a 91% mm. uh, as expected the audience score was 85% percent mm. uh, imdb was a 7.7 and the metacritic was an 83 um so yeah you are kind of right that the critic score is higher than the audience mm. score but they're both still pretty strong scores regardless uh, the critical response, it was very well received during award season, as we've already mentioned. So Nick Merrill and Chris Cooper were all nominated for an Oscar, BAFTA and Globe. Uh, Streep and Cooper won their Golden Globes. Uh, unfortunately, Cage didn't get anything. Most of the critics loved it. Joshua Rothkopf from In These Times. There's no good reason why this film should work. The picture is a shitsy, self-indulgent mess, but magically it does. Jeff Andrew from Time Out. For two-thirds of its running time, the film is close to genius, but there's still no third act. I have to say, I think that lack of focus in the third part of the film actually works, though, to be honest. Kaufman couldn't adapt the novel for that reason. There wasn't an ending. So chose big explosions, exploitation cinema tropes, the deus ex machina saviour at the end, completely sidestepping the need for an actual storyline there. I think it's genius. I think Jeff Andrews wrong on this. I, I think the third act lacking is intentional. Yeah, it is. Mm. Because it cha- like, like you already said, it changes way too much and it's way too obvious for it to be just an accident. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Michelle Fetters from moviefreak.com. Just go see it immediately today. There are far too few few films that make one giddy and excited about the art of making movies. Adaptation is one of them, and it's for the ages. That's quite quite a nice little uh, review. Matt Easterbrook from Matt's Movie Review said, avoid it like the plague. 
you may be intrigued until the very Donald Kaufman-esque climax, who, by the way, isn't even a real person. Therein lies both the joke of the movie and this joke of a movie. <laughs> that review reads like someone who got fooled into thinking that Donald Kaufman was real. <laughs> I thought that was quite unduly negative, I felt, that one. Uh, some people obviously didn't like it on Amazon.com. Uh, Clint said, I'm not sure what they're trying to do here, but basically ruined a great book. Instead of recounting the full story of Susan meeting Jan LaRoche, it's all about Nick Cage's character navel-gazing and playing with himself. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what it is, but I didn't think that was necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> Haiku Fan said, I watched this movie because I'm a fan of Meryl Streep. However, I cringed all the way through to two-thirds of the movie, i.e. the point at which I gave up. I cringed for Im- in embarrassment for Miss Streep. Why did she get conned into acting in this movie? This movie is a third-rate attempt to portray a third-rate writer's third-rate attempt of being a writer. My favourite one comes from a N. Hastings. I was going to do an in-depth review of this movie, but then decided, why should I put the effort in when nobody on the movie did? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. The acting is the best part of the movie. They create an empathy that is the only thing that keeps you from turning the TV off. The storyline, plot and development are are not exploited to the full potential. The idea is there, but the execution is not. Don't be fooled into thinking this is a beautiful movie that will keep you interested and leave you stunned, as it will achieve neither. The reason that this is my favourite review is this sounds like it's from a 19-year-old who wants to be a film critic and doesn't fully understand the words they're using. And the reason I see that is because I was a 19-year-old who wanted to be a film critic. <laughs> like, I recognise my own there. So, yeah. So the good, the bad and the crazy. Stu, kick us off. The good, it was a very good film. It's as simple as that. I really enjoyed myself watching this and I didn't expect to at all. It's just, it knows what it is and if you understand what it's trying to say and what it really is about... It, now, scratch that. You don't really. You can enjoy this on the, the whole onion thing. You can enjoy enjoy it as much as you want, and you can mm. go as deep as you want, or you can just enjoy it as a complete load of bollocks that makes no real sense, but it's still entertaining. So there is something for everyone in this film, but I think that that goes into the bad because how the hell did you sell this? And I think that's probably why it made just over a third of its money in profit, a third of the profit, because. It's impossible to sell to anyone, <laughs> anyone mm. unless unless you already you love film anyway and you're a film buff. You ain't got us. You ain't getting no casual watching this unless you're a fellow, a fan of Miss Streep or someone like that, or you're a fan of saying third rate over and over again. You're not gonna um, you're not gonna watch it. So I think that's the only that's really the only bad thing I could say about it because it was just really good. <laughs> it was a really really good film. And the crazy is how it actually works. That there's mm. four different stories in this. There's the story of Cage. There's the story of what happened in the past um, with the novel, making the novel, and then you got the end. And <laughs> then you got what I already mentioned as well, which is probably not even true, but it's, I'm sticking with it. So, and the crazy is that it works. It really, really shouldn't. Perfect. 
Matt? Nicely put, Stu. Nicely put. Um, the good for me, and it bleeds into what question you're going to ask anyway, was Cage's performance in general, um, especially seeing as he was overlooked on the awards front. Mm. Um, mm. You know, it's it's impressive enough to put in one defining performance of a character where you get so much crammed in. So, you know, so much development of that character in the screen time that he has, um, where we, you know, we learn about his weaknesses. We learn about his frailties and then we see, you know, he develop as a person and blah, 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 blah. But then he does it again and does the complete 180 on that character. And we see that person grow and that person develop. So to be able to do that twice in one film in a runtime of two hours, you know, everybody should be talking about it. It's fantastic. Um, the bad for me is the third act. <gasps> and if it is intentional, if it is intentional, then fine. But maybe that's maybe that's my limit in terms of how much I paid attention or enjoyed the film because it's the irony of being when it wasn't meandering, not really going anywhere for me is where I had the most enjoyment out of it. The 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 action side felt cheap and felt that and you know now you say it's what well, it's a portrayal of what he didn't want to his film or his script to turn out yeah I, I kind of get it and it, it gives me a bit of a huh, yeah that's good but I still didn't enjoy the actual <laughs> bit of it as a film like it, it, that is self indulgent and I know mm-hmm. that's what he's trying to do but that doesn't that doesn't make it any better it's like here I've I've uh, I wanted to make this shit sandwich and now I've got this shit sandwich. Ah, it's funny, isn't it? But then you've got to still eat that shit sandwich afterwards. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um that's not to say that the film was bad by any stretch of the imagination. It was very enjoyed. It was just the irony of when it wasn't going anywhere is when I enjoyed it the most. Hmm. Um the crazy um for me was I scoured the internet to find references to my favourite TV show of all time, Peep Show, because it felt so much like Peep Show in parts. Like, <laughs> if the writers of Peep Show haven't taken direct influence from this, I'll be shocked because it has so much of the same, like the way that they, the characters, or especially Mark Corrigan, critiques himself routinely and the way that um, Nick Cage's characters were, were doing that. And it just felt the way it was shot, everything just felt so much like Peep Show. And that's why I enjoyed it so much in those meandering parts before it got all actiony, because it reminded me of one of my favorite shows ever. Um, and all, and, and also the bit at the end where they're in the swamp just reminded me of the Rugrats movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, when, uh, when for some strange reason, two babies are left on their own in the middle of a, a swamp and uh, the one baby pulls the blanket over the other, the older one. I can't remember what his name is. Oh, that's annoying. The the main one. Yes, Tom. Tommy, Tommy no. and Tommy's the the older, older brother who was in it. I, I I didn't really watch much of the stuff when he had his younger brother come into it. I think I'd grown out of it by then. Grown out of it. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so for my good, uh, I like the fact that like, the trailer spells out exactly what this film is going to be, but you don't know that until you've actually seen it. So it begins with a neurotic screenwriter worried about this 
pretty woman and what she thinks of him, how he's struggling to do his job, and whilst his twin is finding it so easy. Uh, we then hear the line about him not wanting to make it a Hollywood thing. He doesn't want the car chases, guns, bombs, love stories. That coupled with the crescendo of the trailer, it mirrors mirrors the film. So obviously married with under pressure, it makes you think this is going to be an atypical Hollywood fair. When for 95% of the film, it, it absolutely isn't that. But we only get, we only the only way we get is like, Kaufman could be a, success, a successful scriptwriter by turning to his baser instincts. He had to channel his inner Donald in order to make anything come of this book. Uh, the book he's working on has no story, so he has to invent the story. And the Hollywood tropes that he then brings into it in that final third is what helped him do it. That's what his brother represents. So it's the general dumb viewer, quote unquote, who doesn't care about nuance or layers. They just want big explosions and tits and ass. And that's what he gives them in the final third. Like meta wasn't really a term that would have been used much back in 2002. Or it's not one I would have heard much anyway back then. But that's precisely what this film was. It works on so many levels and it's probably more of an art piece than a piece of cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I suppose you could see that either way as a good or a bad. Personally, for me, I, d- I don't give it a, a negative viewing of that. Sometimes you want a Michelin starred meal and the only way that Kaufman could do that is by making it out of a McDonald's meal. <laughs> like, it's quite exquisite. I, I think personally, as a work of art, maybe not as a piece of cinema. You could even say it's like um, it's a critique on things like U five seven one, for example, uh, mm-hmm. uh, constant messing with things just for cinema's sake. When obviously a lot of that film didn't Bon Jovi won there for for one, um, <laughs> but, uh, a lot of what happened in that film was just false. It's not historically accurate at all, but it was made because it's a film. Maybe mm. it's hinting at more than we're giving it credit for, and the, there is that's another layer to it as well. That it's it's a critique on the adaptation of books and real life into cinema pieces. Who knows? But I, I think you're right. I, I do think that that is part of it. I really do. Uh, my bad. It's not really a bad, but like this film had Maggie Gyllenhaal, Judy Greer, Doug Jones all playing really, really small roles in this movie. There's some really good actors in there that they could have given a lot more. I mean, even uh, Tilda Swinton could have had more screen time. They also had Stephen Tobolowski in a scene which ultimately got cut. Like, a really, really strong cast. And I think they possibly could have got more out of some of the actors in it. Uh, My crazy, it's the fact that Donald doesn't exist, yet he won a BAFTA. (laughs) <laughs> so I think he might be the only fictitious character who's ever won a BAFTA and from like my bit of research he's definitely the only character who's ever been nominated for an Oscar uh, that's awesome really that's, cool that's like the like gorillas winning a Brit award <laughs> yeah it is yeah <laughs> uh, so on to the questions did you enjoy this film Matt I'll come to you first yep very much enjoyed it um, maybe a second viewing would actually be beneficial for me because mm. knowing it's 
like Stu said, a critique on the industry, a critique on lazy writing, a critique on a critique on the scriptwriter itself. Um, you know, you, when you watch it, you will, it's definitely one of those that you'll take something from when you see it again. Um, it's quite, you know, it's quite beautiful in parts. Really, really enjoyed. But I enjoyed. I, I, what I enjoyed wasn't the critiquing of the film industry. What I enjoyed was the development of, of the character and and seeing. It, it being done in a realistic way and not this almost biblical is not the word or, or the, the use of the word epiphany. It wasn't an epiphany film. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It was, it, it was everything that this, it, it was every, it was everything that Donald, it, Donald or Char, I can't remember which one was which. It was everything that Donald wanted the film to be, the, his script to be. Mm. It was very beautiful. It was very. It wasn't full of cliches up until the action scenes, <laughs> uh, and yeah. then it became what he didn't want it to be. And I know I understand what you're saying. That's if that's the point, but it just just didn't hit that goal. But yes, I really enjoyed it. Mm. Stu, I've got the vibe that this might be challenging your top five Nick Cage perf- films performances. Yeah, Is that definitely. accurate. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's that accurate that I mean it's a bit beyond the curve, but people know that. We should have done this a few weeks ago, um, but then Justice League came out and we, it was kind of pushed back a bit. But so I, I watch this, and normally I'd normally watch these things a few days before, so it's fresh in my mind. And but we've done it a few times where we've we've put things in the can and for whatever reason. But I wanted to watch this again, and this is the first time I've watched one a film for this that I hadn't seen before, and I've watched it twice, and. Mm. You you absolutely do get it better from a second view, Matt, because it's it is so fucked up and strange that when you know what's coming, you you look for other things. Yeah, and that's what I did this time, the second time round, and it's absolutely worth a second viewing. But just just for that reason, well, for the reason it's good, and the fact that you do get a lot more out of it the second time round, and maybe I've got I've gone too far the other way <laughs> of looking for things that are not there. Um. Who knows if I carry on like this, I might be able to grow a beard like Andy. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, it's definitely going to be when we do the uh, the reset and look at our top fives in a few weeks' time again. Then it's definitely going to be tickling the uh, the old ivories of the top fives. Definitely, mm, high praise indeed. Similar for me, I, I properly enjoyed this film. It scratched that highbrow itch I get around this time of year when we're coming up to the the Oscar season. So the, yeah, the I love for that. <laughs> I mean, that's why you watch Spanx, isn't it? Andy? <laughs> that was great. Slacks, not slacks. Spanx. <laughs> Spanx is something very different. <laughs> um, it's a film I don't think that is for everybody. I think you could just as easily see this and be bored with it. For the first seventy-five percent of the film, there's not a lot there. There's a lot of toing and froing, without much actual things happening. Um, as I said before, it's Woody Allen-esque, channeling that inner neurotic, going around in circles without fully exposing the belly of the beast of the film. Um, but I think once you've seen it it's in entirety, you can fully appreciate the the layers within it. As I say, it's not for everyone. Um, I think maybe I admired it more than I enjoyed it, but that's not to say I didn't enjoy it. So, yeah. Uh, based on this film and this film alone, was Cage good or was Cage bad? Stu? It was exceptional. 
it's a travesty that he didn't win anything for it. He, he, was, he was he was as good as he's ever been in any of these that we've done for the last nine months. He was absolutely mm-hmm. superb. Nothing yeah. more you could say. No, that's fair. Matt? It's um if we split the top fives question as I think we did last time into films and performances, this probably will be a top three for me. Mm. Thought his performance was absolutely exceptional. Really, really, really enjoyed it. Um Tugged on the heartstrings, made you laugh, everything that you wanted it to be. I thought, thought it was great. Can't can't say any better things about it. I almost feel like we could be giving him double marks for this one. Obviously, he played two roles, two different roles, mm-hmm. and he was superb in both of them. Like he was fully deserving of his Oscar nomination that year. And honestly, like Adrian Brody is a good actor. Don't get me wrong. The pianist is dare I say, a little bit overrated. Like, it's, it's properly, massively Oscar-baiting movie. And Andy hates the Holocaust. Yeah, I thought you were, <laughs> I literally thought you was going to say over-wanky because that's what that film is. I, I, I detest it. Like, I, I enjoy films about history and, and stuff like that. And I don't know, the, the pianist just didn't really do it for me. Uh, second headline, Andy loves the Holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, 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 I've seen the, the penis a very long time ago, and it, it, it says something when the one film you take away from, the one thing you take away from a film is is somebody going, peaches, <laughs> holding a can of peaches. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it shouldn't be that's the only takeaway from a film. About, it's no Schindler's uh, List, is it? Let's be honest. I mean, no. if, if you're looking at something that exploring that period of time, Schindler's List is the go-to, surely. Mm. It's, well, it's, more, it's more Schindler's Fist than Schindler's List. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, just, I remember in my like very early days, like you, the 19-year-old critic, Andy going, oh, Schindler's mm. List, oh, fucking, oh, she's wearing red when everybody else is grey. Oh, How clever. <laughs> and then like, thinking that like I wanted to change the world as a, as a critic, but then I think, I just silly I sounded. I'd love to go yeah. back and like reread like some of my essays from you now, but it's absolute turgid dog shit. So, while you were doing that, I was watching Dude, Where's My Car? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so that year, Nick Cage, he was up against Jack Nicholson for About Schmidt, which is a poor man's as good as he gets in my book. About Schmidt's fine, no more. Uh, he was also up against Michael Caine for The Quiet American, I've not seen it, but Michael Caine in 2002 was not a great Michael Caine, personally. Um, and he was also up against Daniel Day-Lewis for Gangs of New York, which, to be yeah. honest, was probably the performance of that group in my eyes. So, finish this sentence. If you enjoyed adaptation, you might also like. Matt? This is not the arty film to watch if you enjoyed it for this artiness. Um, but I do love a story about uh, brothers and dueling brothers and redemption and that kind of thing. So if you liked this film, I want you to watch 2011's Warrior, the MMA film. <laughs> Great film, yeah. Uh, because it is exactly that. It is two completely different brothers um who are vying for the same goal, but it has that extra bit of that delicious onion that um, it has a bit of heart, believe it or not, for a film about MMA, especially about the um, 
the former um, alcoholic, uh, the, the, the dad who's the alcoholic. Um, you know, you don't expect. This was very early in that kind of Tom Hardy. I suppose it's like 10 years ago for Tom Hardy now. I don't think he quite hit the heights yet that, that he has now. Um, and it's just, a, it's just an exceptional film that, again, you can watch with as little or as much intent to enjoy its themes as you want. You can just treat it as just an MMA film that Kurt Angle's in. Or you can treat it as actually this like multifaceted, really beautiful bit of storytelling amongst sweaty men getting beaten up. <laughs> it's a good choice. I enjoyed that film. Great choice. Stu, what are you saying? I'm just stealing it now because I know you're going to say and you mentioned Woody Allen over and over again in this this little t- <laughs> TED talk, um, deconstructing Harry. It's the only thing I can even think of that's anything very similar in any way. Okay. That's because it's a, yeah. it plays with the, the real and the not real and writer's block and all that stuff. So, yeah, very good film as well. Funnier though, funnier than this, but mm. it's similar enough that I can kind of shoehorn it in there. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I never even thought about a Woody Allen film. The the two that sprang to my mind weren't Woody Allen related. I went a little bit more left field with my choices. But yeah, Deconstructing Harry, that's a good call. I haven't seen that for a long time. Yeah, um, so mine, I, I don't want to spoil a plot element if you've not seen it, but The Prestige was the film that sprang to my mind initially. Um I genuinely think that film is a masterpiece. It's exceptional. There's some really good performances from Christian Bale, Rebecca Hall. Like, even Hugh Jackman and Scarlett Johansson were good in it, and I'm not massive fans of either of those. Dare you? And it's obviously a Christopher Nolan film. Uh, Failing that, if you want something just crazy, go with Double Impact, where Jean-Claude Van Damme plays (laughs) twins. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) So that's adaptation in the books. If you've seen this film or anything else, please drop us an email. You can send us an MP3 giving us your thoughts on the movie to cagefightingpod at gmail.com. Make sure you've got us on the Twitter at cagefightingpod. This is where we put out our calls for your questions. We do polls, asking for your opinions, etc. Uh, as you're listening to us now, please make sure that you've subscribed so you don't miss out on any question casts, picture pods or uncaged bonus specials. And if you dare, please, please leave us a review, especially if you're on iTunes. That's the best way for us to get out and other people to see and hear what it is that we do. So that would really appreciate that. So finally, thank you for taking time just to listen to this podcast and spread the word. We would love it dearly. So for this week, Matt, would you like to say goodbye? Take it easy, guys. One shameless plug before I go. Now that lazy people like Stu are back to work in the UK, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't mean that, obviously. Now a lot of people are back to work. Do us one favour. We don't ask for much. Tell a friend if you enjoy it. Get them listening just to uh, help us grow a little bit. So tell a friend. Get them in touch with us on Twitter. We'll answer their questions. And just, just give us that little, give us that push, as Jim Ross would say. But yeah, take it easy, guys. Look after yourself. Stu, would you like to say goodbye? He's going to echo that, but... See her? I fucked her up the ass. <laughs> That's going to be my outro. <laughs> <laughs> See, uh, this something weird's gone on today because I'm not the one saying stupid shit all the way through. I'm not the one talking about Van Damme and action films. I'm talking about <laughs> sensible critique of of picture films. And now I'm coming up with things that you say. Mm. 
it trans- was tra- some transference going on here. Yeah. It was when you said it might be a critique of the film industry in general. I was like, fucking hell, shit. <laughs> this is what happened. Six, six points. This <laughs> you know what this is? This is it was that voice note I left earlier. And I was driving home from work and I went, Shoo, you did really well on that uh, bit of the podcast. And he's gone, oh, fucking hell, I did, didn't I? <laughs> so this is what happens when I let out about pelicans. Not saying it today, but there's always time. Pelican power. <laughs> <laughs> it's goodbye from me and remember be excellent to each other she's got a nice face <laughs>